hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. As per usual, we are diving straight in. Cece, why don't you get us started with our first query letter? Absolutely, let's do this. Greetings, my name is Redacted. I had the honor of meeting Carly Waters almost 10 years ago, and I've been impressed with her publishing advice and wisdom ever since. Following Carly has led me to your amazing podcast, and I've loved every minute of it. I appreciate your consideration and critique of my query materials for my 81,000-word upmarket women's fiction, The Sheltered Ones. The plot focuses on a toxic mother-daughter relationship where idealistic 15-year-old Alice was completely raised in an underground apocalypse shelter. After a traumatic event, her cynical mother, Faye, went into the shelter while pregnant and raised her daughter to believe the world outside was an apocalyptic nightmare. But now, Faye has died, and Alice wants to escape to the world above. She grew up watching movies and has an almost Pollyanna 
Hollywood-esque optimism that maybe the world isn't as bad as her mother said. Halfway through the book, Alice makes it to the surface where she learns there was no apocalypse and we are in modern day America, 2016. The novel is told in dual POV, alternating between the mother and the daughter. It starts with Faye's death and then travels in opposite directions chronologically. Alice's chapters travel forward in time, showing her desperate attempt to escape before she runs out of food or air, and then her attempts to adapt to the world outside, which isn't as horrible as her mother said, but it's far from the idealistic paradise she envisioned. Faye's journey travels backwards, demonstrating what led to this woman making the terrible choice to raise her child underground. Her fear-based reasons are influenced by her own childhood traumas and is exposed by a post-9-11 conspiracy theories that affected her when she was the most vulnerable. This book explores the idea that the kind of life we lead isn't determined by the traumas of our past, but how we choose to heal or not heal from those traumas. Per your submission guidelines, I have included the first five pages below for you to review. I'm an award-winning writer, story consultant, and college educator. My work has appeared in Writer's Digest, The Florida Writer, Bad Apple Zine, Q Literary Magazine, and more. My textbook Redacted is used in creative writing classes worldwide. I received my MFA in creative writing from Redacted, and I currently teach film writing at Redacted. Thank you for your consideration. Author name redacted. Thank you so much, Cece. That's awesome. All right, Carly, this was directed at you. So why don't you tell us what you think of the query letter? Well, obviously, I love a bit of flattery at the beginning of a query. So, you know, I get to pat myself on the back for that one. Yeah, I really liked the upmarket pitch here. I was kind of wondering at some point if this is actually science fiction fantasy. And you know who it reminds me of, Cece, is um, one of the agency authors there's Alison Stein, who's Eric's client. Um, mm, uh, she wrote, yeah. out of win- wrote out of winter in Trashland. So it's kind of reminding me of that a little bit. And, you know, whether it's a market or is it literary or is it post-apocalyptic or is it dystopian? Like it straddles a lot of lines, which can be really great. And I know, I think with one of Alison's books, they use Station Eleven as a comp. So there's lots of like interesting angles to take in terms of positioning with a project like this. So, so that kind of piqued my attention. So I don't know if it's upmarket women's fiction. I kind of have a big question mark about that. I'm I'm not entirely sure if that's right. I don't know if it's wrong, but but I'm just not sure if that is right. And so the last bit in the body paragraphs, her fear-based reasons are influenced by her own childhood traumas, is exposed by um, post-9-11 conspiracy theories. I wasn't sure if that was giving things away. I didn't know if that was a spoiler or not, because usually we talk about not having spoilers and queries, and I couldn't quite get the sense of whether that was a a spoiler or not. So I would say if it is a spoiler, cut that, because I don't think we need that uh, that section there. Um, And other than that, just a couple little, like teeny tiny spelling things and at the end I think CC fixed the word when she was reading it it was just I currently teach film writing and it said current so you know a couple little spelling things the big picture things for me are not totally sure what kind of genre category this in but that doesn't take away from my interest in terms of what this project is about because it seems really interesting so CC what did you think it's a great query letter it's well written I am wondering about the genre and I think that one thing that would go a long way was to add comp would be to add comps because like obviously we've read the pages at this point but when I first read the query letter I was just like I'm not I'm not sure where this would fit in a bookstore right like would would lovers of station 11 gravitate to this book or would it be more right again I don't I don't know if it's women's fiction and so I think that it's it has a great hook it got me curious 
I had specific questions as I was reading the body paragraphs that covered the plot in a good way. Specific questions like, oh, does this mean that, you know, we're spending half the book with Alice alone in the shelter? Like, how's the author going to pull that off? Because it's typically hard for us to spend time with a character alone in in an isolated environment. It's really hard to make that interesting. I'm wondering how the chronology is going to work because it seems a little experimental, but at the same time, you know, ambitious things can be high risk, high reward. So So it's definitely piquing my curiosity, which is a job of a query letter. So good job. And yeah, I would just, you know, proofread it just one more time to make sure that you catch all those mistakes because, well, we don't mind at all. We know that, you know, a few agents do. And so why not make sure that your query is standing out for all the right reasons? One thing I wanted to add also about comps when we were talking about the kind of closed room situation was room. Room is um, by Emma Donahue is one that just kind of came up in my head about that in terms of whether it's like a closed, you know, closed room situation. Would that be one of the comps that are like too big to reference? Yeah. The only other thing is that room's starting to get a bit old. Old, right because it's yeah. also is it eight years maybe eight years old now and it's been a movie so yeah it might be too big yeah. but it's also sometimes the right comp sometimes is a little bit older or a little bit too big but then you kind of set it off with a comp that's more of an up-and-coming novel you know that's the playoff we always talk about comps is that having two big blockbuster comps wouldn't be good but having one you know could, could definitely work so what okay. did you think of the pages so we start off in Faye's point of view and we are learning about who Faye is and, and where Faye is and everything like that we get the sense that they are underground we get the sense that they are dying so we're trying to figure all of these things out we're you know just for the the listener they're talking about the smell of death and and the process of dying also structurally on the page there's a little bit of kind of experimental formatting in terms of different paragraph structure and things like that so right off the bat I'm trying to figure out is it more literary than upmarket you know the tone I'm trying to figure that out everything from this, this opening page is telling you that it's a definitely a more literary project. I'm also finding it a teensy bit wordy. It's hard because this author is trying to encapsulate in this character's point of view what dying feels like and what dying looks like and what it smells like and what it sounds like. And it's not my place to to tell somebody how they're dying, right? But, you know, as somebody who was reading this and and coming to this, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, is this the right place to start the book? Is this the right way to explain somebody dying, right? And so I'm feeling like it's a little bit wordy, you know, they say um, it seeps out of her pores like dust and cabbage. And I would just say like period stop there. But then we go crumbling paper and molasses, stale mechanical fumes and sugar toxicity, right? So we're we're just kind of layering on many ways of saying the same thing, which comes off as literary. But personally, I would just kind of choose one of these, you know, adjectives or, you know, descriptors and just kind of cut the rest. Yeah, I just found it a teensy bit worried. But again, who am I to say how somebody's supposed to die? And so we have this character section, they pass away. And then on page uh, I think we're at we're our last page of the sample. We get into Alice's point of view, who is the daughter. And so this is a very different tone than the mother. So we have a very like literary dying section. And then we have this daughter who says, you know, it's over. My mother's dead. I knew it was coming, but it's still kind of sucks. And so that's kind of explaining to us probably the age of the character. You say that kind of language, like it still kind of sucks. But I also have a lot of questions because if they're underground and they've never encountered anybody else or in this locked door underground situation, wouldn't they speak exactly kind of the same colloquial type of language because they're not influenced by pop culture or anything external in the world. So I was just like trying to figure out like tonally, like spatially. Um, I think we need to do some more world building in this to really figure out where we are. I think that would be really important. The other thing, and again, I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on this, but I felt like this whole opening section 
is about death, right? And about an ending. And this is the beginning of a book. And I almost felt like this book is like ending before it's even beginning. And so I'm trying to think about like, what is getting me to turn the pages? Like, what is sinking me into this? Why does it matter that she dies? Like we all die, right? And so like, why are we opening with the death when we don't know anything about the life? And so I'm having a little bit of a hard time actually like feeling invested in these characters. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a, such an interesting hook. So so yeah, there's so much to work with here. Uh, Cece, what did you think? I was nodding along as, as you were giving your analysis. So I agree. I definitely thought that the writing was was literary. Big fan of literary writing. In terms of the hook, I do think that so typically, right? Like and this is more and more common, like literary novels have bigger hooks. Like this is this is something that's becoming almost almost like expected. And that's great. I love a good hook, but I think it's really important to lean into the world building and Carly hit the nail on the head in the sense that I'm I'm still a little confused about the world that we're in. Like there's lots of questions. Things like her daughter watches films all the time, but how do they do that? Like how do they how do they manage to watch films? Like and and the query letter mentioned that they would have to um, um, that her daughter would run out of air if she didn't do something. But like, how like how does she manage this? And I guess it's good that I'm asking questions because you're supposed to be wondering about the character's life. We did feel like a lot of questions, but I guess it's normal given the world building. Few, what the one big note I had was Faye is is dying, and you know, beautifully beautifully written passages on that. But there's very little emotions for her daughter. There's a line where at the end of the first page that reads, "Her daughter Alice tries to make it more bearable." I don't think you need to say her daughter Alice. Just say Alice tries to make it more bearable. Let us figure out who Alice is, and we will. If we read a few other lines, you're going to mention Alice's dad. You're going to mention, you know, the fact that Alice doesn't listen to you. And for once in your life, I hope you listen to me. That's a very mom-like thing. So let the reader do a little bit of the heavy lifting too, and 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 go on the journey with you. I always say it's a dance. You're leading, but the but the reader is dancing with you. There is also a little bit of POV slipping. So on the second paragraph of the second page, knowing her mother grew too weak to raise her head, Alice retrieved the portrait from the living room and placed it on Faye's lap. Faye wouldn't think of her as her mother. Like, like that sentence was awkwardly structured, right? Like, so I, I, and there's another example of this in the same paragraph. Um, so I think that you should also watch out for that POV slip. And yeah, and mostly it's the emotions. I'm wondering, why aren't you thinking more about your daughter? I get that it's a toxic mother-daughter relationship. So it's totally fair that you're not, you know, necessarily concerned. But here's the thing, even though you aren't going to be you, Faye, you're not going to be thinking and feeling the typical things that one would since it's a toxic relationship, you're still supposed to be charged with emotion. Maybe you won't be, I don't know, worried about your daughter's safety, or maybe you will be, but maybe you won't be buried in grief and sorrow and and longing and despair, but you should still feel something really acute, whether it's anger or rancor or something that's very, very strong because death requires that because death piques curiosity. And the number one thing the reader should feel when they read your pages is is curiosity. Another note that I would have for the author is I wouldn't I wouldn't go down the italics route. I've been saying this a lot on the podcast. I don't know what it is, but it's just I don't think we need it. I think this is very literary. The, the italics are just removing me from the from the character's POV, from Faye's POV. When we get to Alice's POV, I think again the tone was really different and Carly made a really good point. Wouldn't they, you know, speak similarly and sound more similar although maybe they wouldn't maybe there's a really good reason and we'll if, if we kept on reading we would find out i do think that she wouldn't reference the movies right like there's a line that says mother always said the movies weren't real 
Apparently, this girl has spent her entire life underground. Apparently, this is all she knows. So I think she'd be specific. I think she mentioned the character as though they were her best friend and the film title specifically, right? Like, I don't think she would just say the movies because these are the only people she ever gets to hang out with. So, so I'm, I'm thinking that these would be people that she would feel really close to. I'm really curious to see because in Faye's POV, we f- we'd find out that Faye has told Alice or maybe explained to Alice. We don't really know the details, but Faye has made it, has arranged for Alice to die with her. So as long as Alice follows Faye's direction, Alice is going to die too. And I'm really curious to see like, how is Alice going to die? I get that this mom is, you know, desperate measures. She believes the world is... Is, is unfit for her daughter. And so she would rather her daughter die. So, which is obviously a really big thing. So I'm curious to see that. And yeah, I think that there's also no emotion in Alice's point of view, which is something that also got to me a little. There's a line where she says, am I a total jerk for feeling relieved instead of sad? Which because of the movies, she probably understands that, yeah, like pop culture would dictate that you are a total jerk, but that's also okay. In terms of like a like a likability issue, I just would wonder whether, whether Alice wouldn't be feeling more things. I don't know. Maybe she's feeling free. Maybe. I don't know what it is, but I just want these two people to be filled with emotions more. I'm also really curious about like what you do with a dead body in this world. Like, wouldn't she be like, how do Good I point. dispose of my mother's body? <laughs> Maybe she left instructions for that too. I hope so. Like, I, I have just too many questions. Too many questions. I would love- I would yeah. love if there was a list of like everything to do after I died in this post-apocalyptic yeah. world. Like that would be really interesting to me. So yeah, I think we're asking a lot of questions, which is usually a good thing. But yeah, the, the reader wants to know it. And so the writer has to answer a little bit more. Okay, Kali, let's dive into that second query letter. Will you read it for us, please? Dear Cecilia, I was thrilled to read on Manuscript Wishlist that you're looking for morally ambiguous protagonists. Give me your liars, your thieves, your unlikable peeps, exclamation mark, end quote. With that in mind, I'd like to submit Youth and Beauty, an upmarket women's fiction manuscript of 81,000 words, which is based on a modern gender swapping retelling of the picture of Dorian Gray. When a naive young woman becomes a celebrity, she falls under the influence of her corrupt new boss, who shows her a dark side of fame that will eventually threaten her grip on reality. It will appeal to readers of Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler and Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's a coming-of-age story with an industry that looks glamorous on the outside, but is far darker in reality. When Daria Gray is plucked from a suburban mall and offered a TV presenter trial, it seems like a dream come true. But to succeed, she's pressured to follow boss Harry down a debaucherous path of party, fame, and narcissism while losing her own voice in the process. Daria even wishes that a Polaroid taken of her will wither in age over time so she can look youthful forever. As Daria's fame rises, her morals fall and she starts losing her sanity. She begins to believe her wish has actually come true and she's not aging. This delusion about her self-image intensifies until she's living a secretive double life while trying to stop her friendships and career from collapsing around her. I wrote Youth and Beauty because I'm a television director and producer, and I've spent the last 15 years working on shows like Married at First Sight, Dancing with the Stars, and Australia's Got Talent. This experience has allowed me to write about celebrity culture with authenticity. I have a BA in media studies and a master of journalism. Youth and Beauty is my first novel, and I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for your consideration, and I look forward to hearing from you, Lorna. I really enjoyed this this query letter. It was really well written. I'm not usually a fan of retellings, and yet when I when I read this, I was like, oh, this is very high concept. I Dorian Gray, but like a, a, a female version of that. It just sounds just sounds very high concept. And I'm very intrigued. And I 
you know, if this had popped in in my inbox, I would have 100% kept on reading. I had questions about the plot. I Usually that's what I focus on the query letter. It's the body paragraph that covers the plot. Could we be more specific about this path of partying, fame, and narcissism? Because it just feels like we're we're leaning into emotions and to like just vague things to describe the, the issue. Like I, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with partying and narcissism and fame, but it just felt a bit generic. It felt like I was supposed to figure out like why that was so wrong. But my big note, and this is something that really, really like not bothered me as in the query letter bothered me, but I really wanted to know because otherwise it wouldn't make sense is how much time has spanned. Because here's the thing, if she's not aging and I mean, I don't care how enlightened you are. Every woman has at some point, even if only for a second, been, you know, obsessed about, oh my gosh, I'm aging and it's an issue. And so if she's not aging, how long has has it been? Because I don't know if I've, like, if, if this novel takes place in a year, then then she would know that she's not aging. We we can't tell. That's not how aging works. So I do think it's really important to add that in the query letter. I really appreciated that the author told us about her job and the fact that it's based on that because I always love it. I always love knowing like where the inspiration comes from, what informs the writing. So that part's really exciting. So I loved that. I would just 100% add how like the, the time that this novel spans in, in the body paragraph. Carly, what did you think? I totally agree. I loved the title, Youth and Beauty. I thought that was a very intriguing modern title. I thought that was really, really well done. I, in my notes were in the margins were a lot of like, ooh, this is interesting, very interesting. And so I think there's a really good high concept hook here. And I, I just really, I really liked it. I had a lot of questions similar to Cece about age and timing, like how old she is at any given point. I think that's really um, important for us to know. I also, for some reason, and this is probably my my own patriarchal biases, is that when she said she falls under the influence of her corrupt new boss, I assumed it was a male boss. And then we find out in the next paragraph, it's a female boss. So maybe that's on me, but I would have maybe liked to know it was a female boss and try to understand that like the femaleness and the aging and, and all of that sort of, the, all of those themes we're going to get to later in the book. I think we need to change the character's name. I don't like Daria Gray because it's obviously a nod to Dorian gray and I think it's too on the nose personally that's my that's my take overall I think this is very interesting but to me I want to know how much time has passed because it's almost like mythical you know if we get if it's like decades are passing it makes me think of the uh the Cersei novel uh, by Madeline Miller about like these gods who don't age and like what happens with time sing when you don't age and, and what those really how those relationships change and everything like that so I just think there's so much that's really interesting here and again it's almost mythical to me or yeah anyway there's a lot of really interesting things happening here I just want to know how much time is passing that's the big note for me Cece what did you think of the pages I just want to chime in and say that I had the same thought about the boss and like I hate that the patriarchy has done this to me but yeah you hear boss you assume man let's hope the next generation is not like this (laughs) but so okay I really loved the query letter and I thought and I love the concept, very high concept. I do think the pages need a lot of work and I'll I'll explain why. This is just my take, but personally, I think that it's starting in the wrong place. For the listener, we have two television producers who go unnamed for a little while um, and they're watching a string of boring, uninspired females. I read that part from, from the actual pages, telling the camera their names and interests and why they should be the latest sensation to grace the small screen. Essentially, they're they're watching audition tapes right of the next presenter of this tv show called the weekend break i struggled because 
there was a lot of what I call dialogue of agreement in this, which is two people telling us things, and then the narrator also tells us the same thing. So I think that you can either cut the dialogue or cut the narration or, or perhaps do a mix of both, but I didn't need to be told the same thing. And then like half the dialogue also tell me the same thing. That would be like the biggest thing that, that I think needs work. But also, I don't think that watching these audition tapes is the, really the best place to start. I think that we should start with, with Daria's or whatever her name ends up being, Daria's audition, right? Like I, there was a point in the story that I thought to myself, well, I just want to see Daria. We get to see her audition towards the end. But if she's the hero, then let's let's start with her. Let's have her walk in and have these two producers observe her. And we can be in the producer's head if that's important for some reason, but I would prefer to be in her head. Speaking of being inside someone's head, I can tell this person works on TV because there's a moment where this almost reads like a screenplay. Towards the end of the first page, and I'll, I'll read the, the excerpt, now that the light had settled, it was obvious that the two women in the room weren't identical at all. They differed vastly. They differed vastly in age and appearance. This is a screenplay technique. You zoom in, right? Like when you start reading a script, you zoom in and you're like, these two identical uh, TV producers are discussing on audition and then like zoom out and actually they're not identical at all. In books, it doesn't quite work, at least not for my taste. So I would not lean into that device. Sometimes devices from, from screenwriting works really well. I don't think this is... This is one of these things. There were moments where we got inside the characters' heads that I really loved. So for example, we're talking about Harriet now. In her mind, she went into battle every day. I loved that detail. And inside Bree's head, she has all these opinions. And then, you know, not that she divulged those thoughts to Harriet, of course. So, so I like that we're getting the inner life. But I don't think that we need so much narration and so much dialogue. And I will share an example. Bree, I'm speaking speechless. This young lady is it. You and I both know it when we see it. Why did you waste my time showing me these sad imitations of beauty when you had found perfection? Building up the drama? Perhaps my good influence is rubbing off on you. We already knew that Harriet thought that the woman she was seeing was it, right? And it just, it's just a little on the nose. It's its not believable. I don't buy that they saw this audition and they, they, they feel this way. I just, I don't buy it. Maybe I'm cynical. Actually, you know what? I am a very cynical person. So perhaps this is on me, but it's just a lot of repetition. And this goes on throughout all the pages that, that we had access to. I think you're hand-holding us, right? And we don't, we don't need to be handheld. I think we need to, we need to fly free. And I think we should start in a different place. And another thought I had, there's a part where we learned that the TV show, The Weekend Break, is filled with has-beens. Essentially, the people who, who present the TV show are has-beens. But then they're watching auditions from, from like undiscovered talent yet. So, so that felt like a plot hole for me. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe if I had kept on reading, I would have figured it out, but, but I don't think so. So what I would do if, if I were like chatting with the author and brainstorming with them is suggest that instead of like, like just looking at random auditions, what the weekend break did to like maybe to like up their viewership was held a contest. Was they, they they're holding a contest? They opened up auditions to all their viewers to all of America, kind of like American Idol, but instead of being the next American Idol, you're going to be the next presenter on the weekend break. And I think that would just make more sense, and it would make it also more believable that you found someone at the mall because that's where Daria is discovered. So that would be my my plot note. Carly, what did you think? I got very strong, like, Star is Born themes. That was a huge kind of comp for me here. 
I also felt like this was 100% a TV writer. <laughs> like, you didn't have to tell me this is a TV writer. Like, I totally felt that for a couple of reasons. Everything that Cece outlined, but also the amount of distance we have from these, these characters. Like, this narrator feels extremely omniscient. We are very, very set back. And I almost, I think it's a combination of two things. I think it's the combination of this person having a background in TV. And I also think it's this Dorian Gray thing. Because classic novels tend to have that very omniscient narrator watching everything kind of the puppeteer of the whole book and so I think it's the combination of the two things that isn't serving this exact scene as well as it could have or the exact plot as well as it could have so I think those are the two main issues but I got very strong stars born themes and like man that movie has been retold what is it three times now and like people cannot get enough like that is a tale as old as time and obviously for a reason and this is a very high concept version of this so I'm very intrigued but yeah I think there's there's a couple things that we need that we need to figure out and and CC highlighted a lot of that. I wanted more description and more adjectives of the women themselves. Like in this opening line, we have the lights were switched off inside the small edit suite. Two women sat side by side on a couch. Like two women, what? Two women wearing what? Looking what? Drinking what? Like I like what? Right? Just two women sitting on a couch. That's just not enough. And it just wasn't as extremely intriguing, you know, as it could be. I also think we need some adjectives. You know, it says like two set of eyes focused solely on the screen. Two television producers hoping to find the next presenter. Like, I think the author's trying to get some sort of like rhythm and cadence going with this, but I really needed some adjectives in here for this to really feel like a book for me, as opposed to, you know, a screenplay or a classic novel. I really liked the line, despite its name, The Weekend Break didn't actually break any new ground. I thought that was like a cute little wing. Um, I, I liked that quite a bit. But as I always say, you know, the first page I'm searching for tone, I'm searching for like, what is this journey you're trying to lead me on? And I was thinking like, is this satire? Like, what is, what is this? And that kind of classic, you know, very omniscient narrator was making me feel like this was almost satirical, not actually as modern as it possibly could be by having such a modern plot. So I was really feeling a juxtaposition that really wasn't settling as well as I had hoped it would. I also thought another place we could start because we're talking about, you know, is this the right place to start the book? I thought maybe we could start with the line at the end of the first page. There's a line that says, oh, God, breathe. These are all terrible. Like, that's a great first line. Just cut the, cut the first few paragraphs and just move that up. That would work for me. But I do feel like the dialogue, as Cece said, just needs a lot of critical thinking in terms of is that the right way to approach that for these characters? And that's kind of it. You know, I felt like it was just a teensy bit melodramatic, which again, it made me think, is it is it satirical or is it supposed to be earnest? Like I was feeling a lot of that out and, and wrestling with a lot of that. So all this to say there's something here, you know, you have really classic themes and classic storylines. It's just, you know, figuring out the right way to bring this to bring this title to market. I hadn't even considered that it could be satire. That's really smart. Yeah. That would actually make a lot of sense. Like if it is, please include that in your query letter <laughs> because I think we, it, it would have changed the way I looked at this. This is why the query letter is so important. See, I always talk about the pages, the pages, the pages are all that matter. It's not true. Excellent feedback there. Really, really interesting and, and helpful advice. You know, when I teach my writing a kick-ass first chapter class, that's one of the things that I say your first chapter and in fact your opening pages needs to achieve. It needs to set the tone for what's to come. You know, if it's the spooky kind of eerie novel, you need to establish that in the opening pages. If it's satirical, if it's comedy, if it's you know, really a, a kind of formal historical fiction 
voice you're going for, all of that needs to be established very, very early on so that your reader doesn't feel like they're floundering and trying to figure out, is it this or is it that? You know, I actually had that conversation recently with friends of mine who loved the flight attendant and I struggled with the flight attendant, the TV show, not the book, in that I, at sometimes I felt it was over the top, kind of campy. And then at other times it was trying to be kind of scary. And I just, the whole show, I was struggling to get a handle on on what the heck it was. So you don't want that with your book. Let people know straight away what what kind of tone you're setting. Okay, Carly, how about I be lazy today and you read the third query letter for us? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia, I was recently turned on to the shit no one tells you about writing through a Twitter recommendation, and I'm so glad I found you. Your books with hooks number seven especially hit on my concerns for my novel and compelled me to send this query. I am seeking representation for my debut novel, A, which is 99,000 words in women's fiction. Zoe's life is spiraling out of control when a steamy chance encounter with an older man becomes more than too perfect for. The self-described angry widow is in debt, overworked and doing everything she can to provide for her five-year-old son. Fierce competition at the hotel she works for and the occasional panic attack on a bridge where her husband died doesn't help. Then she meets Ben, retired police chief and fellow widower. With Ben by her side and a work promotion within grasp, she's close to having everything she needs. Blinded by their whirlwind romance, Zoe never asks why Ben is so eager to fill her dead husband's shoes, but should she? While following Zoe's trials and tribulations and love and family relationships, the reader gets a behind-the-scenes look at event planning at a four-star hotel that takes for granted its reputation. It is writers and lovers meets the watcher girl in the movie Fear. I believe it will appeal to book clubs, adult women, and anyone who enjoys a twist ending. I earned my Bachelor's of Arts in English with a certificate in concentration in creative writing from the University of Connecticut and was a panelist for the university's literary publication, Long River Review. My short fiction was published in Raven's Perch Literary Magazine's February 2021 issue and a personal essay is forthcoming in Apple in the Dark's winter-spring issue. I drew inspiration for novel A from 10 years in event planning at a prestigious hotel. I live in Connecticut with my husband and two young children, where you can find me illegally bombing down trails on my mountain bike when I'm not writing. I truly appreciate your time and hope you find the first five pages of novel A below. Sincerely, Alexis Keller. Cece, what did you think of this query letter? I struggled with this query letter because of the plot. Again, I keep focusing on the plot. So my first question was, when we read the line, Zoe never asks why Ben is so eager to fill her dead husband's shoes. That kind of framing, as in the new husband will fill in the shoes of the dead husband, as opposed to simply just being a separate relationship, felt kind of creepy. And I'm wondering whether it's intentional. If it is, great, keep it, right? Like this is... This is thriller-esque, it's psychological, it's, maybe it's supposed to be creepy, and that's totally fine. But I wasn't sure, and creepy should always be intentional, is what I'm saying. I also don't get the hook. Keep in mind that I am someone who, I struggle with psychological thrillers because most of them I can figure out what's going to happen by like 20 pages into the novel, so it just it bores me. But we have a young widow having a romance with an older widower. Okay, And then what? Like, I understand that the widow has a lot on her plate, her five-year-old son, competition at the hotel, like mental health issues. This is character development and it's solid. The the writer did a really, really good job. But what about the plot? Like the hook has to be in the plot. 
is this man a manager at the hotel where she works? Which means that, you know, it makes sense that he would like interfere in her life. Does he start to teach her son, I don't know, weird cult-like things? So now her son's being brainwashed. I have no idea. But but the point is, like, I don't get what makes the romance problematic. Like, if the entire book is leaning on the fact that the romance is going to be problematic, that I want at least a hint of how, of the spe- specifically how this will be problematic. And then, you know, when we get to the next paragraph, the comps really threw me off. Like writers and lovers meets the watcher girl and the movie fear. Okay. First of all, how is this like writers and lovers? I am a huge fan of that book, as we all know, because I won't shut up about it. Bianca has interviewed the amazing Lily King. Is it just because of the romance with the older man? Because that that does happen in writers and lovers. But like that's stretching it. So maybe it's not that, right? Like, but tonally, it seems really different. And I don't get how it's like writers and lovers at all. So so if you're going to use that comp, I would suggest clarifying or, or picking a different comp if that's if that's the, the only reason. And also, is the tone like the watcher girl because they're very different books right like the tone of writers and lovers and the tone of the watcher girl so so i would specify and 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 the tone is like or tonally like i think that's important when using such different comps just because it's you don't want the comps to confuse the agent you want the comps to to clarify things for the agent and i felt i personally felt confused it could just be me and then above you say this is women's fiction but as you can tell, because I've been talking about this like it's a psychological suspense or psychological thriller, the two comps, The Watcher Girl and Fear, are very much like psychological thriller, psychological suspense. So so I, I don't I don't know what the genre is. And I absolutely should know the genre based on, on the query letter. The other thing I would say, and this might be me totally overthinking this, so take it with a grain of salt, is I have not watched the movie Fear, but I looked it up and there's an underage uh, girl and there's a girl in, in that movie she, the protagonist is 16 so like the the romance with an older guy if it's someone's 16 and, and and the man is an adult is totally different from if someone is like 29 or 30 or whatever and the man is I don't know 30 years older we're talking about two very very different things that should not be compared so I would also keep that in mind and 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 perhaps if fear is still a comp, not because of the romance with the older person, because of the tone or something else, then again, this is why specifying how something is comparable is so important. So you're not giving off like inappropriate vibes. And then, you know, as a last comment, the, the author tells us that she drew inspiration for uh, for novel A from 10 years in event planning at a prestigious hotel. And I loved knowing that because if it's going to take place in a hotel, then I'm like, oh, she's going to know how everything works. And we're going to get a lot of like behind the scenes and like small details that really adds authenticity to the story. So I was very excited about that. Carly, what did you think of the query letter? I agree with Cece's analysis. I did not know what the hook was. And that's very important for us to know. You know, we have these two widows. One's presumably, you know, approximately 30 years old. This man is, he's a retired police chief. We're assuming he's over 50, right? So there's some sort of like 20 to 30 year age gap here. She's raising a young boy. This takes place at a hotel. She's having panic attacks. You know, this is kind of all we know about this book. And so we assume in any novel, there will be trials and tribulations, right? We don't need to say that. I do really like, as Cece was pointing out, and I had this highlight as well, this whole what's happening at a prestigious hotel behind the scenes that no one knows, that is very interesting. And so I think we need to figure out how all of this intersects and whether it is because they 
meet at an event at the hotel or what, like, I, you know, there's just so much I don't understand. And this whole leading them, as Cece said, with the Zoe never asked why Ben is so eager to fill her dead husband's shoes, but should she? Number one, cut the rhetorical question. Number two, is it because he's a police chief? He knows something about the death that it's not actually, it's a suspicious death and he's trying to cover up or fix something with a suspicious death, which is very interesting. And so if that's what it's about, please tell me that because I really like that. So that's kind of what I'm hoping this book is about. But with queries, I don't want to hope this book is about something. I want you to be like, you know, flashing lights, you know, neon sign pointing down like this is what my book is about, right? So I really want to know if if it's creepy like that. I love it. Also, if, if this has a twist ending and we're using comps that are slightly psychological, this is a thriller, right? And so when we're talking about the women's fiction market and we're talking about the thriller market, there are some books that overlap and that's called domestic suspense or domestic thriller. So if, if this is what we think it is and we're dancing around this conversation, it's probably a domestic suspense or domestic thriller, which has certain tropes of its own that it needs to follow, right? And part of publishing, you know, we talk about on this podcast, like there's writing and then there's publishing and there's packaging. It's kind of what happens in the middle in terms of how we position this book. And so there's a lot of questions we have about how this would eventually be packaged and who's it for. Also, another line that I think needs to be cut is, I believe it will appeal to book clubs, adult women, and anyone who enjoys a twist ending. This is something that publicists will just like, it makes their like, it gives them like goosebumps. They're like, everybody's book is thinks for, it's for everybody, right? And it gets them a little itchy. So publicists kind of are like, ah, you know, and agents feel like that too, right? Because it's our job as agents to position a book in a certain way. And so when you're saying it's for book clubs, adult women, anyone who enjoys a twist ending, like, who are we talking about, right? Like, I actually don't know who this person, who this ideal reader is for your book. And so part of the artist's job as a writer and a creator is to produce a product that somebody else eventually markets, right? And so your job is to write the best book possible. And so all of this positioning talk that I'm trying to, you know, figure out, and again, I'm having a conversation with myself about this. So, you know, I don't know what this author, um, you know, imagines, you know, this positioning to be. These are conversations that we'll eventually have with an agent and with a publisher. But this comes back to the author in a query letter, just figuring out ideally where their book fits. And I think the fact that these comps are so dramatically different and almost opposing, it just leaves us a lot of questions. So I would say strike out that line about who the audience is, but drill down a bit farther in these comps um, and tell me, you know, is this more sinister than we think it is? Because Cece and I kind of hope it's sinister. So lead us down that path if it is. Please tell us what it's about. We're really curious. We want to know. It's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. And so Cece, what did you think of the pages? Okay. So once again, I have like ideas, unsolicited ideas and brainstorming session for the poor author who's listening. I'm so sorry I do this to you guys. Okay. So for the listener, we are in an all-inclusive resort. This is her first vacation in a long, long time. She is a widow. Clay is her husband. He has passed away. And this is her first vacation in a long time. She's a single mom. Her child is not with her. And we get three pages of her telling us how she got there. She mentions how she racked up so many vacation days and because she uses her job as therapy. And she talks about how her psychiatrist pointed out that, you know, the busier she is, the less she thinks about the accident, which, you know, obviously I'm, I'm assuming that it's the accident that, that led to her husband's death. 
And then Megan booked the trip for her. Megan's her sister, who I believe has her son. Um, so it's three pages of this, and we do not need the three pages. Here's what we do need. At the beginning of page, I think it's four. Oh, keep in mind that page one is the query letter, though. So take that into consideration. At the beginning of page four, you know, we see her stream of consciousness, and she's thinking, did I pack enough clothes for him at Megan's? Him is her son. I hope he's not picking up bad habits from his cousins. Did I lock the garage door? Getting robbed would be a blessing since most of what's in there is junk. I should call work. So that's very good because you're showing us she's overwhelmed. That's exactly how the mind of someone who's overworked and has too much on her plate and can't relax because she's in a resort. She's reading the New York Times. She's supposed to be relaxing. She's not relaxing. So that's all we need. Do not tell us how she got here. We're not, we want to know later. We do not need to know now. Start this with her doing something else. And I'll get to my idea in a second. I'll just also mention that she talks about Alex. Alex is her son. But we don't get any emotion of her missing her child or not missing her child. I'm not suggesting that she has to miss her child. But there's very little emotion. It's usually just her mind being busy, concerned for things. And one of the things is her son. But I... I think that it would make sense since she is talking about the grief aspect of her of her emotional makeup so much for her to be wondering, this is the first time that Alex doesn't have me and his dad since his dad died. Like, is he missing his dad more because I'm not there? Like maybe the absence of, or maybe he's missing, maybe it's better. Maybe like her presence makes it worse. Like, I think she'd be wondering about that. It just feels in character. So yeah, in terms of like the writing, I would just, you, you don't have to explain. You're explaining way too much for us. Please stop explaining. An author's job, especially in the first five pages, is to entertain, not explain. So the challenge here is that grief isn't an active emotion. Um, what I mean by active emotion is that it's not curiosity inducing. No one goes to a funeral and thinks, oh my God, I wonder what will happen next. That's, that's not how funerals work or how grief works or how death works. So you need a subplot to keep the curiosity there. Right now, we she's reading the New York Times. She meets this man. The man wants to read her paper. The man's chatty and she's like, no, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. But he keeps talking to her and it's just too on the nose. So here's what I would suggest. I would suggest, since she's such an insider in hotels and knows how everything works, she's stuck in a room that's unacceptable. Her room does not work and she's at the front desk and she's trying to convince the person behind the front desk who won't listen to her that she needs another room. And they're saying, we're all booked up. I'm so sorry, we can't help you. And the man is there also trying to hit on her. And she's like, go away. Like, I don't, I don't want to talk to you. Right. But she's trying to talk to the person who's behind the front desk and she's frustrated. She has a goal, a clear goal. And the goal is to change rooms for whatever reason. It has to be a very specific reason. Can't be a generic reason. And this man keeps talking to her and he's like a really annoying fly around, around her. And at the end of the scene, he fixes the problem. He, he says, I'll switch rooms with you. My room has the thing you're looking for. And that makes her turn to him and go, Oh, and maybe that's how they meet. It has to be something that's not generic. She can't be in this hotel reading this newspaper and this guy just tries to talk to her because it's just too slow. So yeah, that is my invasive and unsolicited and I hope not unwelcome uh, suggestion for the, the author. So my take on these pages is that for the first three paragraphs, I loved it. I wrote like, great, great, great. I, I really liked, you know, all of a sudden we get the context of She's a widow. She's on vacation. Great. And then we spend the remaining pages in a very mundane, every, you know, everyday type of situation. Even though she's on holiday, she is a woman in a situation getting hit on by a man that she does not care for. 
women. I don't know how many, how every day, you know, that is, but you know, for, for many women, that's kind of every day. So I, we really need something unique about this situation. And I think CC's offering of a, a brainstorm there was, was excellent. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that exact thing, but you can, you can, you can riff on that because I think that specificity and that meet cute is so, so, so important and just so crucial to really to kicking this story off in a direction that we needed to go in. I'm not seeing any sinister vibes here. And I know Cece and I were talking in the query letter that, you know, there could be a potential for something sinister happening here. So, so there's that, but yeah, I would, I would say there's a lot to work with here. It seems very interesting, but we just need to kind of pick this up and put it in a different setting because poolside in a hotel getting hit on, not the most grabbing of first five pages, but you have an interesting, you have an interesting scenario here if you are going down a sinister route. So if we haven't encouraged you to write this into a domestic suspense yet, please do it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely what what it wants to be. Sometimes a book will tell you what it wants to be, right? Like it has a life of its own. As always, we want to thank you for offering your pages up for our critique. We know it's extremely brave. CT and I aren't the ones putting our heart on the line here. We know it's you guys. Um, and it's just so inspiring us for you guys to be so brave and to trust us with your work. It means a lot to us. And, and that's why we love doing this. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, everybody, for offering your pages up for critique. Uh, we so appreciate you. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram. 
and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is the best-selling author of five novels, including her debut, Come Away With Me, which was a Globe and Mail Best 10 Books of 2015 and the number one national bestseller, Recipe for a Perfect Wife. A national magazine award-winning journalist, she's been published in a variety of publications, including Self, Red Book, Today's Parent, Best Health, Canadian Living and Chatelaine. She lives just outside Toronto, Canada with her husband, daughter and a Labradoodle named Fred. When not crafting copy or mulling plotlines, she's typically working out, making a mess in the kitchen, and checking items off her bucket list with her family. Her most recent work and her first non-fiction project, The 4% Fix, How One Hour a Day Can Change Your Life, was published in December 2020 with HarperCollins Canada. It's my pleasure to welcome Karma Brown. Karma, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to get to chat to you on the podcast. You and I have done a few events together and it's always such a pleasure chatting with you. And now I get to pick your brain here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Bianca. I'm glad we could make this work. And you asked amazing questions. So I am looking forward to this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Right now, now my brain's just emptied out and I'm like, I have no good questions. <laughs> no, you do. You always have great questions. What I want to focus on today is, I mean, you're a novelist. You have written a ton of books. So let's maybe start with kind of your journey to publication, how your publishing career has worked. And then I want us to focus very specifically on one book that you recently wrote, which is The 4% Fix. Because I think that it's something that most of our listeners should go out and get, and it's something they should be paying attention to. But before we leapfrog to there, can you tell us a bit about your journey to publication? So I am that author who never wanted to be an author, and people are often surprised by this. But I dabbled, you know, I have a book that I wrote as a child that my mom had bound and I loved to read and I loved making up stories, but it never occurred to me that this was a career that I would have. I actually wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to specifically be a broadcast journalist, the Katie Couric of the North. For anyone who's more in my age bracket, they may remember Katie Couric and her, you know, her wonderful career. And that was my goal. And I did go to journalism school and I was on my way to do that. Uh, it was sort of a second degree for me. So I started that in my late twenties. And then on my very last day of journalism school, I was diagnosed with cancer. And this was a long time ago, so I am well, everything is fine. But it obviously really changed the direction of my life. And I had just recently started dating someone who is now my husband. And I had these big plans to go to Northern Canada and become a reporter that, that would then lead me to the anchor desk. And I, I just did a 180. And I started thinking about the other types of writing I could do. And print journalism just popped up for me, but specifically magazines. So I started working in magazine freelance writing and loved it, loved all aspects of it. And then one day I thought, well, maybe I can push the envelope here and try a book. And I had an idea for a novel and I thought, well, maybe I'll try that. And I started writing that thinking that I was a storyteller and I had some experience and things went off the rails very quickly because I did not know what I was doing, despite having been a lifelong reader and have had, you know, having this journalism degree and some experience. Um, but 
it turned out that I loved writing fiction. And once I got into it and I learned about it and I understood, you know, it really works for my brain and the way I like to write. And that was it. So I did work as a journalist for a while. I continued to do that. Um, but now I'm a full-time novelist and I've written, I have five books, five novels that have been published um, and I have two in a drawer. So I have two practice books that will never see the light of day. And then my nonfiction. So I, I mean, I didn't publish my first book until I was almost 41. And that's hugely encouraging for our listeners because there seems to be this thing out there that like you have to be publishing by the time you're 30 or whatever. And people start to feel like there's this ticking clock. And if they don't achieve something by a certain age, and that's why I've really carried on about somebody like Delia Owens, who published mm -hmm. Where the Crawdads Sing. I, I mean, she was almost 70 when that book came out. So it's definitely never, ever too late for that. And I love how you took this, you know, this moment in your life that would be such a huge set setback for so many people and how you were able to kind of just pivot from that and go, okay, well, my priorities have changed, but that's not going to stop me from finding something that I love and that I want as much as this thing that I can no longer do. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I'm naturally a curious person. I, love details and facts. And I mean, I, I have like five random facts about flamingos that I can pull out at any time. <laughs> I'm just that type of person. And that's why I think journalism suited me well. But that's also why novel writing suits me well, because there's so many aspects. You have to be curious if you want to be a writer of any kind. But I think particularly novels, you are in this thing for a long time. Uh, you're with this story and these characters. And if you're not curious about your own characters and your own story, it's not fun, likely to write, but it can't go anywhere. So, you know, most authors I know are very curious people and also have random facts about a hundred different things, which makes for interesting conversations. But yeah, the idea that there is some limit to when you can achieve something or when you can try something new is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I know there's a lot of lists, you know, top 30, under 30 and and they get a lot of play. Um, I feel like we should have like a top 40 over 40 or top 50 over 50 or whatever it is so that we can see that there are people who are just, you know, they've been, they've been at it. They have a lot of life experience and now they're, they're trying something new and being successful. Yeah. And in terms of what you said about curiosity and being curious about your own characters, our characters and the themes that we want to explore in our novel come from our curiosity about the world in general. It's because there are things we can't figure out about the world. Uh, and we try and work through that in terms of our fiction. And, you know, I say to my students, be an eavesdropper, be a person, you know, once we're allowed out in the world who sits on the bus or the subway and eavesdrops on other conversations or in restaurants. For me, it's always like figuring out what makes people tick. Why do people do the things they do? What, you know, leads to certain behaviors? And that's the kind of thing, you know, that I feel that our curiosity as writers really feeds into. Yeah. And I think like dialogue. So it was so interesting. I read On Writing by Stephen King when I first started writing my first novel because I, I had this idea and I sat down and I was on the way. And I think I hit about page two and I had a block of dialogue I had to put in. And despite being a journalist and having researched and, and interviewed plenty of resources and sources, I 
and putting them in the stories. When I got to my book, I didn't know how to write dialogue in a way that felt natural. So I went to Stephen King and he has a lot of great tips about how to do that, which was fantastic. But to your point about eavesdropping, you know, sometimes I'll be stuck thinking about how I want my characters to speak or it's feeling stilted. And in the before times, when I would write at Starbucks or, or another coffee shop or the library, um, I would overhear people talking, having conversations. And the way people talk to one another can really help you when you're trying to write your dialogue. You know, I, I can always tell a complete novice from their dialogue. And I think it just takes some practice to know that you have to listen for the nuances that go into that, those conversations. So it, so it feels organic and it feels really natural, but I miss eavesdropping. Yeah, me, me, me too. And yeah. and the, the problem there with sort of newer writers is that dialogue feels like an information dump. It's yes. like, this is what I need my reader to know about what happened last week. And so I'm going to have two characters speaking about what happened last week in a way that they would never allude to what happened last week. Exactly. Because, you know, we... Or we last have, year. Like, remember yeah. last year when we were talking about that party we were at? Yeah. It's like, no, I, it seems like an easy fix, right? But it actually just, that's not how we speak. That's not right. how we generally talk. Yeah. And and most couples have the shorthand anywhere. They'll be like, do you remember the duck guy? You know, the guy who looked like a duck. And and then, you know, the partner's like, oh yeah, the guy at that party. And it would be like, yeah, with the drink, you know? Yeah. That's and the one we... orange sock. Like, right. Remember that one orange sock? Yeah. Right. right. Or the guy who was obsessed with flamingos or whatever it is, you know, that's how flamingos we speak. We, we, we don't give like the context of, of all of these things and people don't speak to each other that way. So certainly and they, yeah, they also don't use first names. This was the other thing that people will say, Max, did you hear that Bianca was starting this new podcast? And most people, when they're, when there's only two people in a room and they're talking to one another, don't use each other's first names. You know, maybe they have a pet name, maybe they don't, because you don't need to do that. Right. Right. Like so my husband says, if I use his name, he knows he's in trouble. He's like, oh, trouble. hell, what the hell did I do? She's <laughs> using my first name. So and true. and even a group of people won't use each other's first names because they will be looking no. at each other, et cetera, et cetera. So these are things definitely people need to be aware of. In, and in terms of the journalism, it's so interesting because there are tons of journalists who come through my creative writing classes who are like, I know how to write. And of course, they know how to write on a line yeah. level. On a line level, they are excellent writers. They know how to write a good sentence. But journalism and fiction in terms of storytelling are two totally different things. You know, with journalism, you want to give everyone all the facts up front as quickly as possible. With fiction, you want to be withholding interesting tidbits and you want to have the readers having questions. Whereas if you write a newspaper article, you don't want the reader going, what the hell's happening here? Who's this? What's going on? Exactly. And, and it is, I don't, you know, it's such a hard thing to try to explain to writers how to do that. I, I know that when I'm working on a, a journalistic piece, there is a, it's like an instinctual thing where I know when it's time to switch from a fact to then a quote to then just a little interesting anecdote. And there's like this natural rhythm 
and you know that you only have maybe 500 to 2000 words to work with and you have to encapsulate this entire story as best you can, you know, like that, that cross um, view of what's happening in that story. Whereas in a book, it's 90,000 words. And like you said, you can't give everything up front. Facts are very boring, typically, unless it's related to your character. And this is, you know, they're a real nerd. And so they're delivering the facts in their dialogue, um, hopefully in a natural way, even for someone who's really nerdy about, say, flamingos. But it is, there's an instinctual thing to writing. And I find that when I push it too hard and I, and I'm very strict with myself about deadlines. It's one of the ways that I get shit done. Uh, but it's also just sometimes you work against your instinct when you do that. And I think every writer has a natural instinct. The, the goal is to try to learn to pay attention to it and then to trust it so that you feel that rhythm. You know, you can always go back and fix things if you don't get it right the first time. But there's something about getting that first draft down where you've used your instinct and you've found that rhythm at least to get that story told. Yeah. And it does, uh, it's not easy. You know, it, it reads effortlessly, but uh, it's really hard to get it like that. Well, this is the thing. Great novelists make it look easy. It's the same as yes. anyone who's good at what they do. You know, you watch someone who's in the Olympics, they make whatever the hell they're doing look super easy because it's been yeah. years and years and years of practice and muscle memory and developing that. And yeah. it's the same. Same with writers, you know, good writers make it look easy. So we all think, oh, I can just sit down and do that. But we forget about the years and years and years that have gone into that. I mean, Lauren Groff is one of my favorite authors. She wrote Fates and Furies and a number of, I was just rereading her short story series called Florida. And I, for me, she is that writer who just like the top of the game for me. Um, everything she writes, I love. And, but I wish I could see her first draft because I find it just, even for me, I know she has had multiple drafts, but it, it, it feels like perfection on the page to me in that, in this book I'm holding. And even knowing that there are all these steps, I wish I could see behind the curtain and what that looked like. Because like you said, people are, you don't see that hard work and you don't see the multiple drafts that you do before you even get to your editor and then working with an editor, you know, it just, it happens over the course of years sometimes yeah. massaging a, a story. So, and, and reading something that perfect kind of makes you go, Oh, I'm never going to be this good. There's no <laughs> point, you know? I do feel like that with Lauren Groff, I have to say, but I still read it because I love her and her books. So, yeah. And it gives us something to aspire to as well. So let's talk about the 4% fix. Yes. Let's talk about what inspired you to write that book. Well, this was an interesting one. I had a year before I agreed to write this book, said to my agent when she floated the idea of possibly writing a nonfiction book about the fact that I get up at 5am to write my books. And I said, Oh, no, no, I, I don't want to write a nonfiction book. And I don't think that that will be that interesting for anyone. I mean, it's like a one liner, set your alarm, get up at 5am, get your feet on the floor, brew some coffee, sit down, write your book, do it again, the next day, the next day, the next day, you will have a book. And then HarperCollins had approached me and said, 
we would love it if you could write a book for us about getting up at 5 a.m., the way that you've done this to achieve this goal of, of having a novel on a shelf and how that might be applicable to other people who may want to use this, some of those strategies in order to do something they've always wanted to do but didn't think they'd have the time for. And when a publisher says, we would like you to do this and here is a check, it's very difficult as a writer to say, no, thanks. I just you know, I'm not really feeling it right now. So you say <laughs> yes, and then you figure out how to do it. Uh, but I did have, it It was hard. You know, interestingly for me, this was a book that would not be written at 5 a.m. So every other book I have written has been written basically in the morning hours before the sun is up, before everyone else is awake. I mean, I started writing this early because my daughter never slept as a baby. And so she would be up at 3.30 or 4 every day. And it got to the point when she was finally a toddler where I thought, well, I can set her up with some Play-Doh and some spackle and, you know, some toys and I can sit even in the chaos and get some words down. And now she sleeps in and I do not. <laughs> but uh, this book just didn't want to be written at 5 a.m. And, you know, it was sort of like I tried to explain. It's a lot like writing sort of 61,000 word journalistic pieces for a magazine and then trying to make them all thread together and fit together and yeah. mining my own life. And so it was a challenge. It was, um, yeah, it was a challenge, but I learned a lot doing it through, through the whole process. It took a couple of years because I, I think it took us probably two years to even come up with the title. It took a long time to get that title, I, but yeah. I just admire that anyone who's able to write across, you know, forms and genres, because all I can do is, is long form fiction. I suck mm. at short stories. I forget it. Every time one of my books get published, my, my publicist asked me to write essays that could perhaps get publicity. <laughs> and I'm just like, Oh God, no, I'm so bad at the essays. Like, forget about it. So the fact, you know, that you could write these journalistic pieces that you could write a nonfiction book and that you write such incredible fiction as well across different genres too, to me is just amazing. It's like you're a chameleon as a writer, which not many <laughs> writers are able to do. Well, maybe I'm a chameleon. I mean, I, there is a structure and there is a process. Writing magazine article is very structured and you follow, you know, you follow the system. Like you open with an anecdote and then you lead into a bit of research and then you check on a source and you make sure their voice is heard. And then you go back to possibly the anecdote. And there is like a, a, a rhythm to that. And so that does make it easier to write. Although there have been times where a thousand words has taken me longer than like half my novel, just because <laughs> it can be hard to write that tightly. Yeah. But I find, I mean, I'm terrible at writing poetry. I, I simply cannot, I could write a limerick. I think, but that is the extent of my capabilities. I'm not great at short stories. I want to learn, but that is a form of, of writing that is not my wheelhouse at this stage. And I suck at birthday cards, but you know, <laughs> I don't know for other writers out there. It's always like, you're the writer. So you write all the cards that have to go everywhere for our household, you know, cards for birthdays and, and thank you cards. And I'm always like, this is, 
I don't have special skills for birthday cards. It's happy birthday. Hope you have a great year. I have good card skills. So that's at least something (laughs) I could claim. But to be fair, no card will ever contain what I'm saying. So generally, it's a scroll that goes into the back of the card. And sometimes often to the envelope as well. So it's it's so you're writing a novel in in a card. card. You're really committed to this, Bianca, this this idea of long form. 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%, but but I do <laughs> nail a good birthday wish, boy. Okay, um, that's good. <laughs> in terms of the 4% fix, in terms of how it can help our listeners. So something that I hear time and again, and especially, you know, I mean, we hear it from the men as well, but it is especially the woman that they feel guilty about allocating some time in their day to something that means a lot to them, you know, especially if their mothers, especially if there are so many other demands on their time. And the thing with writing is, you know, if they went out and did something else, like for example, yoga or painting or whatever, people see you doing this thing. And so you look busy doing this thing. Mm -hmm. But the problem with writing is somebody walks past where you are writing and you are just like glaring at the page. You are frowning at the page. And people are like, we have to give you all this time so you can sit there and frown at the page. And so it's difficult to justify this as something that you are actually doing, that it's constructive time spent. So in terms of, you know, the fact that you found this time every day to do this thing that you love, what is your advice to our listeners when it comes to that? Well, I I think that it is... It's hard, first of all. I mean, it is simple, but it's not easy. And I say that all the time. And even though I have a good habit of doing this, I sleep in plenty of days where I don't get up as I need to because life happens. Um, I will say the easiest thing to try to do if you want to harness this hour, if you can do an hour, great. If you have 15 minutes, take those 15 minutes. But try to find time in the day where you are less needed. So generally, if you have kids, you know, you you are up and need and they need you, depending on their age, somewhere probably around seven. And then you may not get a chance to have quiet time from your family until the evening. And so there are there are natural times. I've had this conversation with many people who are like, there's no time I have. And then I say, well, what are you doing in the evening when everyone else is off doing their own thing? Maybe they're asleep. Maybe they're doing homework, whatever it is. What are you doing? Well, that's when I watch TV. It's like, okay, so you do have time and it's an awesome thing to choose to watch TV. I love TV. Whatever you're doing, that's making you happy and feeling relaxed. Great. But maybe try to take one day a week, two two days a week, where instead of watching your show, you dedicate that time to writing or, you know, I have a friend who's learning an instrument, learning a new language, whatever it is that you're interested or you're curious about. It doesn't have to be this giant project. It can just be a small thing too. block that time, treat it the way you would an appointment that you can't miss so that, you know, you respect other people's time. So you need to respect your own time. Put boundaries up however you can, shut the door, lock the door if you need to, and take that time for yourself. The reason I do it in the morning is because, I mean, initially I started doing it because I had to, or I was going to go crazy and I was tired of doing Play-Doh at 5 a.m., but it's also very quiet. I've rested. 
So my brain is fresh. No one else is awake. Um, I have my coffee. It's quiet time. I set myself up well the night, the day before. So I'm ready to sit and write and nothing interrupts me. You know, the day hasn't started. People are still slumbering in their homes and no one's shooting you emails. So that is, you know, everyone can find almost everyone. There will be people for sure who cannot make this work, at least right now. And that's okay. But the goal is to just be easy on yourself. It doesn't have to be every day. If you do it once and then you don't do it again for a month, you have not failed. Like I said, it's not easy, but it is simple. And treating yourself the way you would anyone else in your life whose time you respect is the key. It, it has to be non-negotiable for you. 100%. It's, it's yeah. making something a, a priority. And I don't think it helps that, you know, I mean, I love Stephen King as well. I love his advice on writing. But somebody like <laughs> Stephen King will give the advice, like, to be a writer, you need to treat it as a full-time job and yes. sit down at nine o'clock and write until five o'clock. And that's great if you are making so much money from your books that that is what you can do. But like for the rest of us, we are making money other ways. And writing is you know, almost like a side hustle or something that happens on the yep. side. And so we can't do that, but that doesn't make us any less writers because we aren't able to treat it like a nine to five job. No, and it doesn't have to be every day. And I think, you know, like the Stephen King on craft is for me, it was the book that just helped me really understand the craft from it because I had always enjoyed his books. And it was just the, he just had some very clear, clean advice about what to do that I needed at that time. But he's a perfect example of someone who has a life where he is completely protected all day long to work on his books. Even when he was young, he just set up his life like that. And he has a wife who raised their children. And so he was able to go and shut his door. You know, he had something about how he was like, you always need to have a room where the door closes and that door stays closed until you get up and you choose to open it, which is ridiculous because if you, even if you have like a dog or a kid, I mean, there is no way you close a door and someone is not trying to break it down 30 seconds later. So partly it's also helping your family understand why this is important to you. And, and back to the guilt thing, I mean, I get it. It's hard not to feel guilty. And I think women in particular, uh, especially these days, we're on this like productivity just I mean, the pandemic has really created a bit of a productivity like push, like you have all this time at home and now no one's commuting. And what are you doing with all this newfound time that you are bettering everything around you? And the guilt is hard, but you have to, you, you do have to try to move past it and make sure that everyone understands why this is important to you. Like share it with the people in your life. Yeah. And, and, you know, what you were saying, you don't have to do it every day. If you just think about if you only write on weekends and let's say you only write for two hours, you know, on Saturday and two hours on Sunday, or even an hour, if you are just writing 500 words on Saturday, 500 words on Sunday, and that's infinitely doable because a page is like yes. 300 words. So you're writing a page and a half. If you only do that on Saturday and Sunday within 80 weeks, you have got yes. a full novel because you've written 80,000 words. And if you consider some novelists take 10 years to write their novels, you're already, <laughs> you're already ahead of the curve by just writing your novel in 80 weeks. Yeah. So, it's, it's, I mean, it's like breaking it down too, right? If this is particularly about writing and looking at the, how a novel is 90,000 words, if you think about having to write 90,000 words, even I am overwhelmed by that idea, even having all these novels under my belt, I, it feels like an impossible task. How will I ever do that? 
But if you get up and you have a goal and you have today's 300 words, great. Next weekend, I managed a thousand over the course of the weekend. It's amazing how quickly it adds up. And then you have this thing. I mean, the real risk is that you just get overwhelmed by this giant goal, which I call a BHAG, which is this big, hairy, audacious goal. It's not my <laughs> term, but I'm borrowing it. And you get overwhelmed by this like BHAG, which is just how do you overcome that? Like climbing up a giant mountain, trying to get to the other side. And so I like to think of PHAGs, which is my term, which is a petite, hairless, agreeable goal. It is the, <laughs> the exact opposite cousin to the BHAG, but exact opposite. And those little goals, like you said, you only have Saturday, Sunday, you wrote 300 words each day. Fantastic. That's basically a page a day and you are on your way and you only have to replicate that. Okay. How many, how many uh, pages is 90,000, maybe what? 350 pages. Uh, yeah. Yeah. About, yeah. about that. So in a year, you know, if you keep going, you're going to be well on your way to having your book finished. And, and something that I do, I always laugh at myself in the beginning of every novel I write, because I'm so overwhelmed by like the, the 80, 90,000 word goal. Yeah. Then I write too much and I'm overly wordy in the beginning of my novel, because then I feel good when I see the word <laughs> going up, but then I yeah. reach like midway and I'm like, Oh no, I have still got a ton of stuff that I still need to get to, you know? And then I start realizing I have to take out so much shit from earlier that didn't have to be there because those words add up so quickly. They really they do. do. If you just kind of let yourself go, I mean, I don't edit anything until I have a first draft finished. I do not go back and read it over. I do not go back and edit anything because later you can fix it, like you said. But a lot of times you have to let all of that extra stuff out so that you can really understand your story and your characters. And if you restrict your creativity at that stage, you're going to miss things. Then you get to the end where you're editing and you have giant holes and you're thinking, oh no, now what do I do? I have to go and unthread the sweater yeah. and then re-knit everything, which is bad. I've done uh -huh. it. It's unpleasant. I'm a terrible knitter. Everything I knit is me too. Giant gaping holes. So, yeah. so yeah. Well, Karma, we almost at our time. It's been so lovely yes. chatting with you. For the listeners, go out get the four percent fix. What other books would you like to tell us about, Karma? What have you got coming out uh, soon? What is your most recent novel that you would you would like everybody to take a look at? Well, my most recent novel is Recipe for a Perfect Wife. Uh, it came out in very end of 2019, but it just came out in mass market paperback in Canada and, and uh, paperback in the US like a couple of months ago. Um, so those are, those are my most recent. And I have a holiday rom-com that is under a pen name. My pen name with my co-writer is Maggie Knox, and it is coming out October 5th. It's called The Holiday Swap. And, you know, maybe that's a story for another day, how I then shifted and somehow strangely wrote a rom-com during the pandemic um, under a pen name. But I, it was fun. <laughs> I, I'm going to want you and Marissa back. I'm actually yes. going to want to interview the two of you together because I am so fascinated by writing partnerships. Uh, and I yeah. would love to have the two of you back and we can do a deep dive into that then as well. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank, thank you. you. This was fun. I appreciate it. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at the shit about writing at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.